The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, Mr. Antenna, now your host, Jim Tofty. A few months after Anthony Bourdain's death in June of 2018 at the age of 61, his longtime assistant, Lori Wolliver, started interviewing his friends and family. Wolliver first met Bourdain in 2002 when he hired her to help him write a cookbook. After working with him for so long, she thought that she knew pretty much all there was to know about him. Not so much true as we find out in her new book, Bourdain, The Definitive Biography. I've got Lori Wolliver on the line right now in New York City. Hi, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Lori. Thanks so much uh, for joining me. And I, boy, I should say that your book... Bourdain, the definitive oral biography, is already creating quite a buzz, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, we've been really, uh, really lucky. People seem to be responding to it. And, you know, it just really speaks to the um, the love that people have for Anthony Bourdain. How did you come to know Anthony in the first place, who is this hugely popular, but as it turns out, a, a bit of a tragic figure? Uh, I started working with him in 2002. He had just gotten a contract to write his first cookbook, and he needed somebody to help him out with recipe editing and testing. And I was qualified for that job, and uh, we got along really well and and made a beautiful book. And so then several years later, uh, I was uh, in the market for uh, a job job, and his assistant was on her way out. And so he hired me based on our work together years before, and I ended up being his assistant uh, from 2009 up until the end of his life. Being a chef, was that his main focus, or was he interested in other things like writing and traveling and everything else? I think he was always a writer from a very young age. Uh, In the early part of the book, there's a quote from his mother, Gladys, uh, about how she always saw this potential in him as a writer and a creative person. So I think uh, as you know, he figured out pretty quickly, uh, being a writer is not exactly a path to financial solvency. So he knew he had to do something else, and, and he became a cook. He went to the Culinary Institute of America and was a cook and a chef for a long time, but he always was a creative person. He was a writer. He also uh, took a, a stab at being a, an illustrator of comic books, but it really was was his skill as a writer that catapulted him out of the kitchen and uh, into success as a best-selling author and later as a very popular TV host. You interviewed quite a few people, didn't you, for this book? How many uh, people were there? There were just under a hundred people, and there are so there are ninety-one distinct voices in this book, and it's everyone from his now late mother, mother Gladys Bourdain, his brother Christopher Bourdain, his first wife Nancy, his second wife Otavia, his daughter Ariane. Uh, many, many kitchen colleagues, publishing colleagues, uh, colleagues from the television world, and then just some, you know, friends he met along the way, including Nigella Lawson, the British cook, Anderson Cooper from CNN, uh, W. Kamau Bell, who was one of his uh, television colleagues at CNN, who has his own brilliant show. Uh, so a real range of, of people uh, who, who all knew and loved Tony in their own way. In the book, you learn that Anthony was obsessed with tanning, right? That's right. Yeah. As a as a young cook in the 80s, uh, he and his buddies would, you know, cook a, a shift and party all night and then take the train out to the beach in the morning in the summertime and just lay on the beach and get tan. And there were a couple of guys that he was actually in a tanning competition with. And uh, that that interest in maintaining a healthy glow really kind of followed him through the rest of his life. Uh, One of his 
longtime directors told me that any time they were anywhere there was sun, he would be out with his uh, reflector surface trying to get a little bit of a of a glow on his face. Oh, how times have changed, right, Laurie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know there was one friend, I think, who said that he did this more recently to hide the pallor of his heroin use. Yeah, well, so that was, I mean, he was he was active in uh, using heroin in the in the late 1980s. So that uh, that definitely was was a way to kind of cover that up. So uh, he 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 kicked heroin, I think, uh, by the early 90s. But I, I think he never he never really kicked tanning. He and he was not a sunscreen guy. You know, he was a, a life is short. Let's uh, let's get a good base coat going kind of guy. You mentioned his wives, uh, his relationships with women, uh, for the most part, didn't go well. Did that have something to do with just his emotional maturity? He was always someone who who was moving on, it seemed like. Well, you know, he was a deeply, deeply romantic person at heart. You know, I think that having having a, a, a big, exciting romance was very, very important to him. And, and he idealized people and he idealized situations. So I think if when he found women who were uh, very headstrong and sort of fiery and and complicated, that was really, really exciting to him. And that sort of defined uh, all of his major relationships. And he just, yeah, he just had this really kind of beautiful, if sometimes troubling uh, vision of, of what, you know, what romance should be. And that was, he wasn't ever going to be somebody who, who felt kind of lukewarm about a situation, whether it was romance or you know, drugs or work or whatever it was, he was he was all in a thousand percent. What was your working relationship like with him? It was, uh, for the most part, very professional. You know, I uh, I really wanted to give him space. I think so many people wanted a piece of him and wanted something from him or wanted to try and entertain him or be entertained by him. And I just, I was really conscious of that. So I always tried to just be professional, be polite, do the work. Uh, you know, as we got to know each other, we, we had a, we had a good time together and we, I think we shared a similar sense of humor, but he was always with me very kind. Uh, he never sort of gave any of those lacerating, uh, comments that he would give to other people you'll see in the book there's some really funny stuff about these very harsh emails that he would write to network executives or to editors <laughs> uh-huh. and, uh, they were very funny to see and i was always very glad to not be on the receiving <laughs> of, of that kind of feedback <laughs> yeah well you know and a, a thread that seems to run through the interviews that you've done is that people wanted more of him. Like you say, they wanted to be around him. I think Anderson Cooper was one who said, I, I just couldn't get enough of being with the guy. Yeah. Yeah. There was always this sense that he was rushing in from somewhere and he was rushing out on his way to someplace else. So even if he really, really liked you and you were friends, there was always this sense of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to take up too much of his time and, and he's tired and he needs to, to get going. And so there was just, you know, there was a restlessness. One of his uh, directors uh, says you know, he was a shark. He was always on the move. I think he had to sort of stay moving to, to survive. I think it was his brother, Christopher, who said after his first marriage ended, he sought out prostitutes. That's right. Yeah, there was, you know, he was lonely and, and looking for comfort. And I think a lot of people can can understand that. He was in a place, uh, he was in St. Martin in the Caribbean, where I believe it was, uh, it was a legal trade. So, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, that was just how he, he, he 
sought comfort at that time. His second marriage ended also, but it ended amicably, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I, I think, uh, you know, and his, his second wife, Octavia, talks uh, a lot about this in the book, that uh, it just they didn't work out as a couple, but they remained very good friends and, and really committed uh, co-parents to their daughter. So, um, you know, it's sort of the best, uh, the best possible end to, to a marriage is when you can remain friends and, and do the best by your child. And he did always treat his daughter very well, didn't he? Mm, of course. She was absolutely the center of his life. He, the way he would talk about her when he was on the road and, you know, the gifts that he would seek out for her. And he got her this little watch so that they could, um, you know, with a phone in it so that they could communicate wherever he was. And he really, he was such a, a fun and, and, and committed dad. It was a really lovely thing to see. Did any of his close friends and associates say to him, you know, when he was having problems, you need help? Mm-hmm. Because I, I almost have the feeling that that wouldn't have gone well. Yeah, you know, I, I can't speak to other people's conversations, but I know myself once in a while I would say, uh, you know, we didn't often have these conversations. But when we did, I remember a few times suggesting, well, you know, I, I go to therapy and I think it's really helped me and maybe it would help you, too. And at that time, he said, oh, no, I'm too old for that. You know, it's uh, it's not not for me, uh, which, you know, that was that was his decision. At some point, he did, in fact, uh, start to see a therapist, which was very encouraging. So but there's a part in the book where he where uh, Josh Homme, the musician, talks about how they both had decided that therapy wasn't for them, uh, that that they were you know too old or that they didn't trust it. So. You know, it was it was uh, everyone has to kind of come to that on their own time. I, I wish in retrospect that that he had sought help earlier, but that's unfortunately not the way that things went for him. What was his uh, final relationship like with actress Asia Argento? Well, as you, you'll see in the book, as uh, a lot of people were, were around for it, uh, it was it was complicated, and it was all in. It was all. Uh, all-encompassing for him, you know. He, as a, you know, as a romantic, as sort of an obsessive guy, it was. It became kind of the center of his life. You know, he was just deeply, deeply in love, and and really, uh, really kind of committed himself to trying to make the relationship work. And you know, people are complicated, and and love and romance are 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 complicated things when they work beautiful, and when it's. When it's rocky, it can be devastating. And I think that that was definitely the case for him. How did you find out that he was gone? I got a call from uh, his agent, uh, who's also my literary agent, very, very early in the morning. I think it was about 4.30 in the morning. uh, And it was, uh, you know, it was important that those of us who were close to him find out before uh, the news broke, uh, you know, worldwide. So... It was, uh, it was the, you know, the kind of call that you never want to receive. And when you see your phone ring at 4.30 in the morning, it's, it's not, you know, it's not good news. So it was, it was a very, very difficult time for me and, and for a lot of people. Lori's book, The Definitive Oral Biography on Anthony Bourdain, is available at Amazon.com and uh, at your favorite bookstore. It was nice talking to you. Thanks so much. We're, we look forward to, uh, to getting into this book. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a good one. And I think you knew that when his life ended, that there was a lot more going on with his life than we ever knew. And through her exhaustive research with all the interviews, we find out so much more about him in this highly entertaining book. That finishes off this episode of The Fake Show Podcast. I'm Jim Tofty. 
Thanks so much for stopping by. I'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.